Come on. Hello, dear listener. Before we get into today's show, quick ask. If you find value in today's show or you've gotten value out of a previous show, please leave us a quick five-star review. Be super grateful. Thanks a lot. John, are you ready? I am ready. Great to be here. Excellent. I'm ready. The people are ready. Let's go. Welcome to Money Savage Engage. This is George Grumbacher. Dr. John Johnson is the founder and CEO of Edgeworth Analytics, a consulting firm helping people and organizations better understand and interpret data. I'm excited to have you on. John, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. Uh, well, I guess first and foremost, I'm a husband and father, uh, two kids. I uh, live in Northern Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, in the uh, pandemic, I've uh, been a pretty religious runner and taking up uh, electric guitar and poetry to try to fill my time when I'm not doing my main job, which is I'm an entrepreneur who runs a data-driven uh, company, actually two companies. Uh, one specializes on uh, being expert witnesses on data issues in large-scale litigation, and the other focuses uh, on how do you make sense of data for companies and uh, more broadly everyday people in their lives. Nice. I love it. I feel like you are potentially winning quarantine with electric guitar and poetry. <laughs> I'm not very good at either, but I'm just sort of just spending my time on it. So. Yeah, well, like, that's awesome. <laughs> had to had to get some hobbies. <laughs> Do you did did you know how to read music before? Nope. Okay. No, I am about as not musically inclined as possible, but I take some online lessons with a very nice patient instructor, and uh, you know. I just uh, every week stick at it and, you know, have the guitar next to me right here. And when I get bored on my Zoom calls, I jump over and <laughs> practice for like 10 minutes at a time. <laughs> nice. And I'm going to have to just ask about poetry, too. How did how did that come to be? Well, you know, I, I actually have always loved to write, even from when I was a little kid. But, uh, you know, for me, it's always hard to find time. A big part of my day job is writing reports and things. So it's not always so easy to do sort of um, pleasure writing. Yeah. Um, but uh, I have found that another kind of neat thing I discovered during quarantine is sort of uh, Zoom writing circles where you can write with other people and sort of read your writing and stuff. And so I started doing that a little bit, uh, another way to connect with people. And then found poetry, you know, although it's hard, it's short so I can kind of focus and kind of try to get some words out. So, yeah, that's what I've been doing. Nice. Um, Very again, cool. I'm not really a renaissance man, but <laughs> just had to do something in this world. <laughs> well, it sounds like you are one in training potentially, so... I like it. So data and polling. When I think about polls, I think about political polls because like it or not, we are in the midst of a of of just 2020 and the election cycle and everything else. Is that like how 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 do you think about polling? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I am a trained economist and statistician. I'm actually it's called an econometrician. And so when I got my PhD at MIT, I kind of never realized like what I would be doing later. I thought I was going to be a professor the rest of my life. And I very quickly found I was like way too social to be a professor. <laughs> um, and so as I kind of went into consulting, started to deal with real world data, real world issues, um, you know, I've always tried to, how can I teach data to other people? And so whether it's whether I'm an expert witness and I'm teaching to a judge or a jury, whether it's teaching to a client, um, 
I wrote a book on data in 2016 called Every Data. And one of the interesting kind of side effects of that, which was not expected when I wrote the book, was the only thing anybody wanted to talk about in 2016 was polling. So I don't conduct polls, but I do interpret them and sort of try to give a kind of practical gloss on what does all of this mean? And so the reality is in a year like this, there's a lot of um, what I would call sort of whiplash from the 2016 election. And, you know, no matter which side of the aisle you're on, you know, there's a pretty dug in opinions about whether polls can be trusted or not. And I think what I always try to tell people is that when interpret, pro- interpreted properly, um, data is really effective. And the same goes for the polls. Now, that doesn't mean that you should necessarily believe every horse race kind of media story about polling. But if you actually look at the numbers closely, you can learn a lot about these things. And I think that's really an important insight that we can't just throw away all of our interpretations of data simply because we don't take the time to interpret it correctly. Well, certainly amen to all of that. I mean, one of the things that, well, I'm having, and I think that we all are, such a hard time getting our brain around COVID is that I feel like I'm not getting all the accurate data. When 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 you hear me say that, when you hear somebody say that, what what goes through your mind? Like I, you can say that yeah, I'm wrong. I, well, no, I actually don't think you're wrong. I actually can tremendously empathize with this. And in fact, one of the things that happened to our firm is when COVID hit, everybody's been affected in different ways. Um, we pivoted and started to do a bunch of analyses on COVID data, and we started to build dashboards. Um, on what the case counts were looking like geographically, what the numbers were. And when we went to that exercise to start to do that, you realize that state by state, having all of these disparate reporting standards, different levels of testing, uh, different reports on hospitalizations, it's actually very difficult (laughs) to interpret all of this data because it's coming from so many different sources being reported in so many different ways. That said, there's kind of a big picture, you know, the number when you hear 200,000 deaths, that's a huge number, right? Right. The changes in the caseloads and the intersection, I always call it, of epidemiology and statistics and, you know, as I said, as an economist, I've had to learn a lot about sort of basic, um, basic issues with respect to the data on the virus to even begin to interpret the economic crisis that people have been facing. So I think you're absolutely right that the data is hard to interpret, but I think sort of some basic things is understanding that case counts, um, you know, you can follow those trends geographically, understanding that there are different testing regimes in different areas. So sometimes the only people being tested are the ones with the worst symptoms, which means the numbers can actually be worse um, than you might expect. Um, But also just sort of trying to get a feel for it's not that there's so much precision in the numbers that looking at them day over day is necessarily going to give you the full picture (laughs) Um, because sometimes numbers spike simply because suddenly there was a bunch of reporting one day. So we report most of our numbers weekly and we try to sort of frame them in a way that is at least useful, but it is confusing. Um, And I would say, again, don't, don't give up on trying to interpret the data, but at least be cognizant that there are limitations. Yeah. Appreciate that. So, I know um, so many companies are now struggling to figure out how to and when and everything to bring people back to work so that they're going to be safe and comfortable and all those things. How are you helping organizations to make those decisions? 
right? So for our company, a lot of what we've tried to do is, again, because we are a data-oriented company, is trying to give people the information or help them organize the information they need to try to make sound decisions. You know, I can't tell... I can't tell a company what level of risk they need to take on <laughs> or not. That's right. got to be a sort of a very uh, business-oriented decision. But what we can do is give information. For example, um, there's a lot of information about which types of jobs um, are more or less likely to have long periods of time with contact with others and how that might affect the spread of COVID. So that's a kind of practical thing. <laughs> um, there's a number of workplaces that can be reconfigured in certain ways to meet guidelines for social distancing, and there's others that can't. So at least sort of trying to get an assessment of those types of things. Another issue I know we often deal with is people sort of are trying to do surveys of their workforce just to get a feel for what is the level of trepidation and anxiety amongst their workforce and how can they be flexible. So um, for us, it's been a lot about providing information. And I'll give you a real concrete example, one that I'm really proud of is we were, uh, we have a strong relationship with the NFL Players Association, and they had actually approached our firm about building a COVID um, dashboard for them so that we have a dashboard on their website that their players use that show the case counts um, city by city for each NFL location so that they could sort of begin to educate their union about what the realistic threats are, what the hotspots are, and things like that. So um, we are finding we're being called to do different kinds of things than we ever expected six months ago if you said, well, one of your high-profile um, engagements will be building a COVID dashboard, I would have told you you were crazy. <laughs> right. um, but but that's the kind of thing that we find we're doing, again, and always for us ties back to data, data, data. A lot of really interesting stuff there. Um, what what role does does bias, and I, I guess let's start with that, because I, I, I want to talk about bias and then emotion and how, how you use that, and then how do you help your clients and the people you're serving manage through those things on their end? Look, it is very difficult. All of us as humans are kind of uh, calculators in our head. We're always trying to make sense of the world around us. And so when you look at data, no matter who you are, you are bringing some inherent biases to the picture. And so I think the key is to use the data and try to think about it in a most rigorous format. And what I always advise clients and people is like, let's start with what's the question you're trying to answer. Let's start to identify what your prior expectations might be so we can sort of say, okay, you think this is what's going on. And then let's identify what data can be informative to see if we can confirm or what might be rejecting those sort of hypotheses, right? So the idea is that if you bring a disciplined process to your data, you don't have to throw your intuition away, but you can use it to sort of put it to the test to see if it needs to be refined, if it really is rejected. And so what that just requires is being open-minded enough to put to the test and phrase what you're thinking about as a question and then try to think about it objectively. But it's very hard to um, be free of bias as a human. <laughs> yeah. So the other thing we do is, you know, there isn't always one answer. We often try to take multiple approaches and multiple tests. So we say, look, if you look at the data this way, it shows this. If you look at it this way, it shows this. And then you kind of triangulate to say, I do these multiple things when I answer the question, and I ultimately get to an answer as the composite of different takes, not just one simple, the answer is, I always joke, the answer is not three, right? right. Um, the answer is more nuanced than that. And I think that's a real key to fighting back on bias. So the answer is a blue three. It's not just three. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a nuanced three. Right. <laughs> kind of a wavy three got it okay um, <laughs> that's it, fascinating uh it, it just 
I mean, what a could you have designed a better case study? It, it, like think about uh, just thinking you're you got your PhD at MIT. Could the could the professors have designed a better case study than COVID? No, I mean I can tell you just you know as I said I'm not an academic anymore although I do have an academic background but I see you know the number of papers that have already been written on COVID by academics in real time. I mean we're going to see people writing doctoral dissertations on this across so many fields for the next you know 20 30 years. Like this is going to be something that is you know um, going to be studied and studied and restudied. And so. Um, it is fascinating. It is always difficult that I sort of kind of remind myself that, you know, the part of me that is so interested in data finds it fascinating, of course, but that is tempered by the reality that there's a lot of people dying, that it has shuttered large parts of the economy, um, that there's real suffering going on around it. So, you know, the key is can what can we learn and what is meaningful? Um, and hopefully, as I keep saying, is uh, if the data can be informative, that is the best use of it here. You know, you want it to help with decision making so we can make the best decisions in an unprecedented time. There's no blueprint for how to deal with this, but that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. So if, if, if you will indulge, if you will indulge me, I'd love to sort of pick your brain and, and walk through uh, a case study. You, you read about how there's some companies in Silicon Valley, I think Twitter just said, Hey, we're going to, you, you never come back. You're, you're welcome to work remotely for the rest of your life. And then you have um, Netflix, the CEO, I'm not going to be able to produce his name right now, said that remote work is the worst thing in the world. We need people back in the office. For an organization to, how how would you engage with an organization to to make that decision? And so just kind of, kind of so, soup to nuts. Right. So I think the starting point for all of these things is sort of like, I get back to what organizational goals are. What is the product that is being produced? What is the business? And what is the core elements of how the business actually, you know, uh, approaches their line of work? It is absolutely the case that there are some businesses where you have to be in person to effectively um, do your job. And there's others where you don't have to at all. And then there's others where you might be able to, but it depends. So it's some kind of interesting combination of what are the business goals? How does the workforce, what is the profile of the workforce? What is the risk profile with respect to people being together and the potential for, you know, both um, risk of getting infected, but also how would anxiety and those kind of expectations affect the workforce and performance? And then I think there's, um, you know, what are the types of data that you can rely upon? Well, I do think this is a place where certain, you know, surveys of attitudes of employees actually I think is a little bit helpful here to sort of gaze at. I think leaders are going to want to know what their employees are thinking. But I also think there's a lot of data out there about um, how much interaction is required in different workforces and different jobs. Um, what where are your workers located? Because obviously as the case counts change over time, there's different levels of risk. So it's a pretty multifaceted approach. Again, this isn't an easy problem, but again, I come back to sort of my basic approach is, what is the key question you're trying to answer? What is your key business goal? Um, how can you think creatively about it? And what data sets do you have at your disposal, both those that would be public and those that are specific to your company to try to craft, at least provide the information to decision makers so that they can have a data-driven approach. Again, I can't tell someone whether they should reopen their office or not, but I can help them put some rigor around the key parameters so they can make an informed decision. Yeah, yeah, I certainly appreciate that. And again, you know, that's a, just an, a, another test case was, I mean, the NFL Players Association helping them to, here. here's the data. You have, you know, the 
all all the risks of your health your your health risks, but then yep. the massive economic incentives. Now here here it is. You guys make your own decision. Yeah, there's a lot of it, which is sort of trying to empower people with data. I mean, our relation with the NFLPA goes back to their lockout several years ago, where we helped them model injuries on the field, and so we've kind of a tradition with them of working to try to help give them data to inform them. And again, the key is that they have to make intelligent decisions based on it, but we try to provide some level of objectivity that they can sort of have real, not, and also make it, in, you know, that they can interpret it, right? The, the data sets are large and complex and just throwing random numbers at people without any sense of like, well, what do I even think? You know, the nice part about our dashboards is they're fairly simple. You, you click on a location and you see a graph with the case counts and you see <laughs> a few benchmarks and it's, it's fairly straightforward. So, really good data analysis for anyone is takes the complex makes it simple enough that it can be interpreted without abstracting from the key details got it well we are living through a very very dynamic time um and it really doesn't matter to me what side of the aisle somebody is on from a political standpoint i want to change kind of shift gears on you a a a, a little bit but for people who are trying to trying to make heads and tails over just all the information that's now available to us and sort of flooding into our lives through social media and just all the different ways that it comes to us. How do you counsel people or how, how, how would you suggest people where, where should they be getting their data from or where, where, where can (laughs) they? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one because you know, there are a lot of sources of information and not all of it is accurate, but I kind of generally tell people and um, I started talking about this in my book a few years ago that when you are a consumer of data, the way that you can be a better consumer is um, first, everybody comes to the table with some level of intuition. One of my favorite examples is, you know, you read a headline in a newspaper, um, live near a Starbucks and your house values go up, mm. right? And that sort of, and so you think about that, and you're like, wow, is that really the case? And so then you read the article and it says, oh, we found a statistical relationship between locations of Starbucks and, you know, house values. And now, of course, the problem with all that is not, you know, that you want to move to the neighborhood where the Starbucks is. It's that perhaps Starbucks strategically places their stores in the neighborhoods that are more expensive. <laughs> um, and so, the reason I give that simple example is, you know, you didn't have to go dig into the data on that relationship to figure that out. But what you did have to do is stop, pause, and, and read past the headlines a little bit. So the, the starting point I always try to tell people is, even if you're not a, a data geek like me, that doesn't mean you can't interpret and think about data in a more nuanced way. And part of it's about stopping, pausing, and thinking about what is this telling me, and is there any other alternative explanations for that? And the other thing I would just say, because you asked about sources of data, is, you know, when you look at particularly news stories, you know, if you are willing to do a little bit of digging deeper to find what the source is, um, you know, the web is a great thing for sort of, oh, new study by this or that. But understanding, you know, again, back to that issue of inherent biases are, you know, is, is something being put forward by an organization that appears to have some, you know, um, prior position that actually would be advocating for that? Um, is it a source from government data? Are there certain things that are sort of usually the key is that the data sets are pretty clear about what their limitations are, but people ignore them. So again, I know most people don't have time to be infinitely digging through data sets, but you can do a little bit of sort of, if you're willing to go a little deeper, I think you could be surprised how much you can find just by stopping, pausing, thinking, and looking a little deeper before you just take something you read or um, as gospel preposterous john i cannot be expected to do any more work 
I'm a busy. <laughs> we are all under um, a lot of stress and brutal time constraints. So <laughs> yes, I have many more social media posts to scroll through, John. Of course, I'm kidding. I think that that's excellent advice right there. I like it. Well, John, Savage Nation is ready for your difference-making tip. What do you have for them? Uh, my big tip would be simply don't be afraid of data. Trust your instincts when you think about data analysis. Well, I think that is great stuff. That definitely gets Come on. Come on. So if the PhD from MIT just told us that we can trust our instincts as long as we have good data, well, I think that that is, uh, I think that that is good to hear right there. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on. Where can Savage Nation learn more about you, and how can people engage with you? Yeah, so uh, please check us out at edgeworthanalytics.com. That's our website. Uh, you know, we have all, all sorts of resources there. You know, one of the things we're proudest of, we have this data blueprint sort of program, which is just a chance to sort of, if you want to ask some questions or, you know, you have a data issue, but you're not, you know, not looking to kind of spend a ton of money, but you just want to talk to somebody who's informed, we kind of try to make ourselves accessible that way. And you can always reach out by our website and email and the like. So, Excellent. Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show John your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas, go to edgeworthanalytics.com. Check out the data blueprint, and I will list that in the notes of the show. Thanks again, John. Thank you. Great talking to you. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we are all in this together. Spending too much time on social? Is your daily screen time over two hours? Are you a little bit overweight? Not saving enough money? Any or all of these are familiar. Strive could be for you. The Strive two-week online boot camp will help you to detox your mind, body, and money getting you on your way to a happier, healthier, wealthier, and more confident life. Go to strivedetox.com, S-T-R-I-V-E-D-E-T-O-X.com, and get your mind, body, and money right.